0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. And Good morning, Journey Church. Good to be back. Um, that was intentional. Three weeks off is really good for me. Uh, I come back with fight and vim and vigor and, and a, a desire to try and uh, give myself, once again, it's important to take time off to sharpen the axe, right? Otherwise, it's really hard to cut the trees down. So, some time off. Now, I will also say this. I only, I only meant to miss last Sunday, but I actually missed the Sunday before because my mother had a stroke. And not everyone knows that, but um, thanks to my daughter and son-in-law, they were actually there two Saturdays ago. They came back from getting coffee. She was slurring her speech and laughing about it. Classic rodent underreaction. And uh, my son-in-law, Taylor, said, either get in the car or I'm calling the ambulance. And she finally gave up and took her in. And sure enough, it was not a TIA. It was uh, a real stroke. Um, but she's made of rubber. She bounced back. Um, small stroke. You could just you could see it over two weeks uh, we spent the day with her yesterday, my wife and I, and Timothy, and uh, she is getting better. And so uh, you could still hear it a little bit, but she is rocking. So, those of you who knew that and prayed for her, thank you. Um, but thank you for praying for the, the whole extended Roden household as we come together and bless my mom. She's 84 and doesn't act it, but um, she's doing well, and um, thank you. So, uh, that's that. Listen, this morning we're back in our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, just to give you a flyover of where we've been and where we are going, because I don't know of uh, three chapters of Scripture that are more brilliantly designed than this three-chapter sermon. And and it opens up with this. We know in chapter 4 that Jesus was attracting a crowd from all over the place. And the Scripture describes that. He's in the Galilee region, and individuals are coming from Syria, so we think maybe even Gentiles are coming down. But then you think, oh, it's, it's in Galilee. But then it says Jerusalem and Judea. So they're traveling upwards and downwards and crosswords in order to, to meet with Jesus, to experience his presence, to experience his miracles. And that's all in chapter 4. In chapter 5, the sermon begins this way. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples Came to him and he began to teach them. And what we see is these sections begin to unfold before us, these classic sections that many times are cherry picked out of the Sermon on the Mount, and yet we see the logic and the flow and the brilliance of our master and teacher. Section 1, verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5 is that classic section that we call the Beatitudes. And what we have are eight descriptions of normal, everyday, down-to-earth, run-of-the-mill Christ followers, and that when they engage the right-side-up kingdom-of-God principles, they begin to flourish, and they are promised they're, they're, they will flourish for all eternity. After that comes uh, the second section, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus talks about the impact and mission ...of his followers in this world, and they are described as salt and light. The third section comes, verses 17 through 20, where Jesus gives a positive explanation of the law. His original intent of the old covenant. Not the perverted forms that it had been been given by the scribes, the Pharisees, and the rabbis. And at the end of that, he makes this shocking statement that sets up so much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount where he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven, which had to be so shocking because the scribes and the Pharisees were so intensely religious. And we think, wow, we need a perfect righteousness. But there's another nuance to that. It's of a whole different quality. There was something amiss in the Pharisees' righteousness that he was going to correct. And lo and behold, the next six sections in section four were six corrective illustrations or examples pulled from the Old Covenant and from the traditions where Jesus Describes what this righteousness that exceeds that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. What it would look like in issues such as anger and murder, lust, adultery, divorce, deception, manipulation, hatred, and revenge. Each time taking on the popular teaching of the day. The ways that the law of God had been tortured, redefined and then lived out as if that was the right way to do it. Now, at the end of this, and Pastor Tyler last week uh, mentioned this and talked about it, but Jesus makes a similar mic drop statement, similar to that of, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That on the other side of those six illustrations, he says this show-stopping statement in Chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you go, we're done. No one can be a Christian. I'm done. I am unworthy. I can't do that. But here's the the joy of that is that the word doesn't mean that you are sinless and perfect yet. Yet. The invitation is to maturity. See, the word in the Greek is telos. If you know the word teleology, it has the idea of of all the parts and pieces being well-designed and fitting together in a comprehensive whole that has integrity. It makes sense. There's no hypocrisy to it. It's robust design. Well-designed and complete. And the call is to this kind of telos a maturity to grow up, that it would be holistic. There's nothing in your life that is outside of this design. And that this design would come to completion. Now, let me just tell you, i got to be honest. There are times when I choose sermon series because I need them. In fact, I would say most of the time because I'm you. And so this was my year of spiritual formation and going, you know What? I'm 53. If I believe my two oldest sisters, they led me to Jesus at two and a half years old. That means for 50 years I've been trying to work out that which He worked in. I'm trying to become more like Him because He saved me from my sin. But as I look at my life at age 53, I go, it's not good enough. I'm not there yet. I'm frustrated. I'm hungry and thirsting after righteousness. I still bloat. I still mess up. I'm the poor in spirit. I mourn it. If you want to br- level a charge against me, I might just agree with you. That's called meekness. And just go, guilty as charged. I got nothing. I'm still on that journey, but I'm desperate. Are you? See, I don't want to die a jerk. I want to die like Jesus. I want to die telos. How about you? Because I think that's the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's the groaning in the spirit The way I treat my wife, the way I deal with my finances, the way I give, the way I serve, the way I preach, the way I I meet with people, both saved and unsaved. My private world, my thought life, I want to be telos. I want to be like Jesus. I want to grow up. We are to grow up and be like the Father in all these things. that's what it means to possess a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, we come to a new section in the Sermon on the Mount that hinges on this verse. See, that was a a bookend to those six illustrations, but it also is a page break to set up the next section that's very much related to these six illustrations. It's still in the same vein of thought as a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes of Pharisees. So they're going to be compared and contrasted once again. But the new standard is the T loss, the, the completion, the end product, the comprehensive righteousness of the Father is to be what we are like and what we become. And then just like the last section where Jesus talks about the principle and then gives six illustrations, he's going to give the, 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 the principle and give us three more illustrations. So half, but just as important. So, the principle comes first. Not only um, the T loss principle, the last verse of chapter five, but the first verse of chapter one introduces the particular of what this T loss is supposed to look like. All right? So, here's the principle in verse one. And by the way, the principle goes for the next three illustrations, which will take us, I believe, five more weeks to unpack. Here's the principle. Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So what is this? And the reason why I say that, uh, rhetorically, what in the world? I knew that sin in unrighteousness has to do with morality. It has to do with anger. And hatred and lust and adultery and divorce and manipulation and lies and getting even, hating my enemies. I know that righteousness has to do with those things. It also has to do with my exercise of my religious duties, my spiritual exercise. That sin not only touches bad things and makes me want to do them, but sin also pollutes the good things because that's what this is teaching sin takes good things that everyone should be doing spiritual things beautiful things and turns them into evil things by making them self-glorifying things so years ago After a church service, someone stayed afterwards. He was young, he was wealthy, and um, he was weeping. And he had given a check for $1,000 in the offering and told me that he loved the church service and that he was gonna come here. And every time he came, he was gonna give that same amount. So we do the math and we could get him here for 52 weeks, we would have $52,000 of offering, right? A little temptation. Like, whoa, what did we do right? Tell me what, what we did right, because we could really use that. We were like in the red, massively in debt. Secondly, he made the statement that he had prayed and the Holy Spirit had shown him the meaning of every single verse in the entire Bible. Wow, so this guy's now like 10,000 times smarter than me. And the final thing was, and I speak in tongues, and then he demonstrated it, and said, and if you ever need someone to get on the platform and show it to others, I'm your guy. And I went, whoa, there's three things. And I said, hey, I want you to know God loves you as you are, not for what you can do. And that ended the conversation. The next time I heard about it, it is the closest thing I ever have ever received from as a death threat. His extended family was terrified because of how he was talking against me, saying, Pastor Jim Roden is a false prophet. He must be taken out. And I was put on high alert that this guy actually had means to do so. So, giving, expositing, performing tongues, and I hit pause and said, you matter more than the things you could do. And he went ballistic. Okay, that's, those are good things. We need more givers. We need more Bible students. We need more individuals that aren't afraid to step in front and lovingly lead. And yet all those good things were twisted Reminds me of another friend or a friend of me. Um, See, we were both chasing after the same girl. I happened to win. Generally a good guy. To this day, I'd count him a friend. I'm not going to give his name. But he was going on a date with a different girl, and he had his Bible, and he said, he whispered, Jim, bring your Bible on dates. Chicks dig spiritual guys. Okay, so first example is kind of extreme that ends in a death threat. This one is just icky. Okay, guys, don't. Be real. Be you. Right where you're at. If the Bible comes into play and you're going to read it and that's what you do, do that. But not for an image. Not to win or trick the girl. Because if she says yes and you marry her, you're going to have a lifetime. That your integrity is not going to match up with with your uh, dating practices. And so, just a word of encouragement. The, the, the point is this, sin takes good things and makes them icky things. Augustine of Hippo said it like this, the love of honor is the deadly bane of true piety. Other vices bring forth evil works, but this brings forth good works in an evil way. And both matter. Yeah. See, sin deceives and pollutes on the level of the motives and our our principle for today and the principle that will be carried into the following weeks is this a bottom line that will continue forward is that a righteousness that exceeds and we could actually supply we could add an and or we could take that out and say a righteousness that is telos A righteousness that exceeds or a righteousness that is telos. T-E-L-O-S would be a um, phonetic way to, to say that. A righteousness that exceeds or is telos is a righteousness that lives for an audience of one. Now, who in here can say, yeah, that's me all the time? I live for an audience of one all the time. This morning, we are going to... Allow Jesus to hold up the mirror. And I'm not sure we're all going to like what we see in it. So could we stop and just pray for receptive hearts? Lord Jesus, in the end we agree with you, not our self-defensiveness, self-righteousness, or saying, yeah, I'm a good person, we're going to get caught any number of ways. But Lord, give us hearts of humility uh, that celebrate grace that you will love us in spite of ourselves. We're not there yet. We're not to the end product. We're not mature. We're not perfect yet. But Lord, you've given us good hearts. Help us to receive what you have for for us. In Jesus' name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the the major principle, followed by three illustrations, let me just map those out so you know what's coming. Uh, The first is almsgiving that we're talking about today. The second is prayer that we begin next week and we'll go for three weeks. And then the final one is Fasting. And the reason why I want to point these out, and that this principle applies to all these areas, is that while these are, are illustrations that Jesus takes from, from just general spiritual lifestyle, that each one of these particulars represents a broader category. He could have picked pick, pick something else out of these categories, but he chose these three. Let me give you the categories for almsgiving which is giving of my personal resources to those in need. The broader category is taking what I have and serving others in this world. Other image bearers, be they Christians or not, that when I give of myself and my resources, I am serving others. That's the sermon title. I didn't just pick on giving to charity. Giving money to the church, but any we give of ourselves and give it away. The second one, of prayer, any time I am pressing into God. So this could be our morning Bible reading plan, which I highly recommend and prescribe if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, that you need at least five out of seven days per week where you are allowing God's word to come into your eyes and ears and you're pursuing the heart of Christ by allowing the Scriptures to wash you. You're praying it back. You're listening. You're journaling. You're listening to music. You're memorizing Scripture. This is pressing into intimacy with God. So, first one, serving others, intimacy with God, and then the final one of fasting is any time we're subduing the flesh. It's called the mortification of sin in our lives. So, when we fast, we're trying to get a handle on, we're beating and buffing our body, making it our slave, lest after serving the Lord, we are disqualified from the prize that He wants to give to us. And so, we've got to take measures to, in a lot of uh, the last six illustrations, was about subduing the flesh, self denial, self sacrifice. So, there they are, the big categories. And here's the deal anything you could do. In this lifetime of, of substance and that matters. All of Christianity in following Jesus falls in one of these categories. So he's going to actually cover the entire gamut. But here's the problem sin pollutes even my walk with Christ. It is deceptive, it is sinister, and it Mixes and takes away and diminishes the beauty of telos in our lives. So, specifically in the area of of giving of alms, taking care of the poor, uh, serving others, the broader category, here is what Jesus says in verses two through four. We'll spend the rest of our time unpacking things few things that I think are really important in here to understand. But this is, this is the scripture, starting in verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy, so we're supposed to give um, to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing So that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, specifically in the illustration that Jesus gives, I want you to understand this. God cares what you do with your money. It's really important, an important thing about you. And to explain why, I just want to cherry pick a quote by Donald S. Whitney, from his book on Disciplines for the Christian Life, he says, Why does God consider a biblical use of money and resources a crucial part of our growth in godliness? For one thing, it's a matter of of sheer obedience. A surprisingly large amount of scripture speaks to our youth of wealth and possessions. If we ignore it or take it lightly, our godliness will be a fraud. Because we're just disobeying what God said to do. That's the simple, direct statement. But as much as anything else, he goes on to say, the reason our use of money and the things it buys indicates our spiritual maturity and godliness is that we exchange such a large part of our lives for it. Because we invest most of our days working in exchange for money... In a very real sense, our money represents us. Your intelligence, your drive, your problem solving, your education, your time are all converted in work into this commodity that's now depersonalized and can be distributed for many different reasons. You've taken a portion of you and you've converted it, and now God says, could you use some of that for me Can you give yourself back to me? And in this instance, can you give a portion of yourself back to me by giving it away for others? You get the picture? So that's both the giving of alms to the poor, but also all kinds of charitable giving, including that of giving to a local church. It matters. It says so much about your walk with Christ. That's between you and the Lord. Do with that whatever you need to, but but generosity is godly generosity is good, generosity is telos. This is what it means to be like our Father. And yet, almsgiving, generosity is easily polluted by sin. Look at the hypocrites. Jesus says the hypocrites do it in this way. The word hypocrite in classical Greek culture was one who wears a mask. One actor with multiple voices, they would change costumes, put on a different mask, Go back in the amphitheater and play a different part. That was their whole job. It wasn't wrong or right. It was just their job as an actor. But Jesus supplies that to religion. And it becomes a very negative and icky thing that he's talking about here. Now, normally when we think of hypocrite, we think of the person who says one thing and does the other. Right? They say they're Christians, but look how they did this and what they're into and how they, and that is certainly a bad form of hypocrisy. That is not the the form of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about in this section of the sermon on the mount. It is not an issue of morality. These people are saying one thing and actually doing it, but there's a third rail, and that is the desire of the heart. This person's word and profession actually adds up in real life. This kind of hypocrisy is very subtle, very sneaky. And in the end, God's the only one that can really see it. That when you actually say you believe something and actually perform it, the real litmus test is why are you doing it? And if those things are out of whack and it's not for an audience of one, that is hypocrisy. And guess what? You are listening to a hypocrite. Because I cannot say my motives are perfect or pure. It's the reality. How about you? Now, this cannot be an excuse to eliminate these spiritual practices (laughs) it appears that there are some believers that solve it by saying well then i'm just not going to be spiritual period and if i'm saved i'm saved if i'm not i'm not if i'm saved it's of grace and i don't have to put on a show for anyone so i'm just as bad as i want to be there's really those people and when it comes to giving i don't give a dime because i don't want it to be like you know questionable can I just remind you, this has come from the basketball world, I don't know who said this, but you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Right? You've heard that? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And guess what? Not giving is worse than giving and having a bad motive. You can't give with a good motive if you, unless you try to give. And it might have a bad motive. So you miss 100% of those shots And it's not excuse, and that brings us to our first sub point that Jesus, not once but twice in this text, says, When you give, not if you give. You follow? Listen, this was normal. This permeated ancient Judaism. This permeated first century Judaism. This permeated the early Christians and the church. They were givers. They gave to needs, and they gave to the poor, and they gave to each other. That's the scripture we read in the call to worship or in the scripture reading. Nobody had need. They were all giving their stuff away one to another. They were generous. And thus, verse 2 and 3, when you give to the needy. We go back to ancient Judaism and the commandments of God. Leviticus 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself... With you. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. Another commandment was so, sojourners. Man, take them into your house and provide for them while they're sojourning. Take good care of the foreigner. Don't play racism. Take them in. And now, here, the Lord is saying if your brother becomes poor, treat him like that. He will always have a place in your home even if you have to make room on the living room sofa, that you're going to take care of each other. And then later on in in Deuteronomy, actually, uh, yeah, later on, um, Deuteronomy 15, when it comes to servants that have lived in your household and it's time for them to go free, that you're supposed to send them out like this, uh, When you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So Old Covenant Judaism was to be generous in the serving of others. It was normal. Now what about the first century church? You know that the first collection, obviously we read about it, was just to provide for everyone who stuck around after Pentecost. But a few years later, you want to know something that happened is the Jerusalem church, due to persecution, they lost their jobs, they were kicked out of guilds, they were ostracized and so they became very, very impoverished. So the Apostle Paul, as, as the church planter among the Gentiles, as he raised up converts and organized them into churches with his entourage and his fellow servants, they began to take up a collection for the mothership, the place where it all started, the persecuted Jerusalem church. And it shows up at least four times in various New Testament books that the first passing of the plates in the churches was a relief effort for the Christians in Jerusalem. So to cherry pick at least one, if not two, um, one from First Corinthians, maybe from 2 Corinthians, looking at the clock, I think I got time we see that the Apostle Paul is teaching on this and saying thank you and make sure you get this done because it was expected when you give, not if you give. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So Galatia and Corinth. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Get it done. Have it in a big check and we're gonna, I'm going to take it over to Jerusalem. They didn't have checks, I know. But it was going to be already collected. They're not going to wait for that day and do a love offering one time. Make sure you're stacking this up. And then in his second letter, he says this in chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So, Glacia is being, being honored in the first letter. Now all of the Macedonian churches are being honored. And he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So these were not wealthy Gentiles. These were impoverished Gentiles. So generosity, almsgiving, is not a rich man's sport. It is for everyone. Everyone. As It was done in Macedonia Verse 3 of 2nd Corinthians 8 For they gave according to their means As I can testify and beyond their means Of their own accord Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints And this not as we expected But they gave themselves first to the Lord And then to the will of God to us So that's just like amazing like Old Covenant, first century Christians, generosity, almsgiving, uh, serving others was everywhere. It was normal. It is a when, not an if. Now, some good news. Religious people differentiated from non-religious people. This was a study done by uh, a man named Arthur C. Brooks in a book called Who Really Cares? This is 10 years, 12-year-old information. I doubt that it's changed much in 12 years, but this is what Arthur C. Brooks uh, researched and discovered. People who are religious give more across the board, not only to religious causes, but to non-religious charities as well. People who worship every week are going to now be delineated by those who show up twice a year. This is what he says. Those who worship nearly every week give away three and a half times more money each year than people who go once or twice a year. And then he says, charity isn't just a rich man's activity. Listen to this. The working poor give a greater portion of their income than the middle or upper classes. Wow. Now that's 12-year-old information I went and curated a few more stats, current. And this is what we learned. This is a good, good news, bad news. Good news first. 77% of tithers, you know, that means they, they get to a 10% line. Tither, that's all it means. 10, tithe, 10. 10% of their income. 70% of them don't stop at the tithe. They go to 11 to 20%. So once they hit 10, they get really generous. Why? Because it's fun, and it's blessed. It's joyful. Here's another bit of good news. From this year, more millennial and Gen Z donors are giving than ever before. Gen Zers, let's hear it. <laughs> Woo! Here's the bad news. Members, church members, 75 to 90% don't even reach the tithe. They can't even figure out how to get it to 10%. They're not knowing the joy of generosity. 90%. And then here's the the real mirror of the generations. Church members today, members of churches, not attenders, members are currently giving a smaller percentage of their income today than church members gave during the Great Depression. Wow. The point of telling you these heavy stats is when, not if. You're missing out. I don't know if it's you. I don't know if we're just awesome. Everyone's awesome in here. But I just know the church in North America is in trouble. We're missing out on the commandments of Christ. We are not becoming telos. Well, um, the second thing that I want to touch on is the apparent contradiction that is set up within the boundaries of this sermon. That we're gonna see is not a contradiction, but here's the deal acts of charity and serving others are going to be seen. It's impossible for them to not be seen. Someone's gonna see the charity, someone's gonna receive it, someone's gonna know about it. It's impossible for it to be invisible, and yet we're told to keep it invisible. It seems. But Jesus had already said, make sure they see your good works and let them shine. So this is chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works. Okay, you get the contradiction? Like, what's the deal? Am I supposed to let them be seen or not seen? Because here we're actually reading that when you give, sound no trumpet. So which one is it? Let them shine or keep it quiet? In fact, he goes on to make it even more complicated and says, when you give, don't even let your right hand know what your left is doing. So again, which one is it? You ever thought of that? What's going on here? Uh, Of course I'm not going to sound a trumpet. By the way, there's no archaeological evidence that that ever happened. In the same way that it's actually impossible, I want you to hear this, it is impossible for your right hand to forget what your left hand is doing. These both are hyperboles. Jesus is is using figurative speech to get a point across. And the point is not the technicality. Everyone's here, I'm great, no trumpet. i never played a trumpet. I'm good. Um, That's not the point just as it's impossible for your hands to have amnesia. Okay, what is the point? Here's the fill in the blank. Here's the idea. It will be seen. Good works are always going to be seen, and they're supposed to be seen, but never to be noticed. You get the the nuance there? Man, I want simple and clear and bold, and Jesus wants me to walk a tightrope. He wants me to do the right thing, he wants the right people to see it, but he wants my heart to stay pure. And that's much harder than do or don't do. He's calling for finesse and accuracy. This is telos, the balance of loss that he's calling us to. See, trumpet blowing and amnesia are hyperbole. This is all about motive of the heart. And we see when we go back and we read, for instance, Matthew 6, 2. And you actually read the rest of the, of the sentence. And it says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogues treat the streets, so they may be praised by others. So they may be praised by others. And then back one verse, the general principle verse, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In order to be seen by them. Listen. You can't parent your children if they don't know what you're doing. They're going to catch you reading your Bible. They're going to find out that as a family, you gave money to the church. That's how you train them. That's how you make disciples. And you go, oh, no, they're going to know the right hand and the left hand. You go overboard. That's not what Jesus meant. It's not like that's even possible. The point is that the motive of your heart is pure. I'm doing this for an audience of one. I'm walking this finesse tightrope of of my practice and my generosity and my motives. I'm not announcing it to, to others. I'm not even announcing it to myself is the picture. I'm doing it, but I'm doing it out of a heart that just loves my God. I'm playing to an audience of one. And in fact, when we bring this back, to the verse that I set up the artificial tension with, Matthew 5, 16, when he says, in the same way, let your light so shine before others, you go, oh, hypocrisy, oh, right hand's gonna know, oh, you're announcing it. No, look what he says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father. They've gotta see your good works. They've gotta see our good works. But on our part, we easily just maneuver out of the way and we pass the glory on. It's all about the heart, not about the technicality. So of course don't announce it. Of course don't even keep track of it and count it up in your mind, am I a good person? Ooh, I gave 12% last year. That's the point. Walk away. In humility, do what's right. Give glory to the Father and let it rest Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The Christian is to live in such a way that men looking at him and seeing the quality of life will glorify God. He must always remember at the same time that he is not to do the things in order that he may attract attention to himself, but must not, he must not desire to be seen of men. He is never to be self-conscious. Good deeds are to be seen, but they are never to draw attention to self. By the way, I can prove this from the ancient church scripture that we uh, read earlier on and two chapters later uh, there was a man named Joseph, and he sold a piece of land, and uh, this is after uh, the book of Acts describes how people were doing this and bringing the, the proceeds and laying them publicly at the apostles' feet. So church services were not even a private plate passing. They were walking down, and the apostles sitting up front, and they were putting the gifts in front of the apostles, everyone saw it. And two people saw Joseph sell a piece of land and give 100% of the proceeds, by the way. Out of that, he got a nickname. What was the nickname? Barnabas, son of encouragement. They go, ooh, that guy kind of got famous, being so generous. So they went out and sold a piece of land, and they only brought part of the proceeds. That would have been okay. But what we discover in the scripture is they made it look like they gave all of the money when they held back some. What were their names? Ananias and Sapphira. It was not that they held back some. It's that they made it look like all. And because of that, God gave a one-time illustration in the scripture for us. He killed them. They were not being telos. He loves them, but he killed them. Like, don't do this. He gave them life. He's allowed to take it. He killed them. The picture is that it was public. Right hands and left hands knew what was going on the heart was wrong. Barnabas was right. He didn't care. People saw it and go, that's a good dude. We should be more like him. And and Barnabas is like, what? I I don't know what I'm doing. Just love God. He's self-unaware and just giving. That's the picture. But then these other rascals are like, bring your Bible on a date. Chicks dig. (laughs) Right? Right? See, it was image. It was icky. And God says, I need to make an example here. And that's our example. Dallas Willard in Divine Conspiracy says, Their deeds are in secret no matter who is watching. For they are so absorbed in the love of God and of those around them, they hardly notice their own deed and they rarely remember it. Amen? Wouldn't that be so cool to be there? That would be telos. Like the father. Here's the final thing. In the final warning, we will be rewarded. No matter what, we will be rewarded for our giving. But only with what we actually wanted. The motives of the heart are clear before God, and he goes, if that's what you want, that is what you will get. But that is all you will get. So we will either get the praise of man, men, or we will get the audience of one. We cannot stop people from noticing true righteousness. God watches it all, and he knows the heart. Sometimes giving and serving will result in praise, sometimes in persecution. Remember back to chapter 5, right? They're going to hate us because of this goodness. So you don't know if you get praise or persecution, will you do it anyway? Because you're playing to an audience of one? The motive, however, of why we're doing it is going to determine the reward. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want to be recognized? Do you want to be thanked? Do you want a plaque? Do you want a building named after you? Or do you want the applause of heaven? Do you want the attention the notoriety of God himself. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says that if you do it wrong, you will have no reward from your father. Dallas Willard says it this way, our intent is determined by what we want and expect from our action. When we want human approval and esteem and do what we do for the sake of it, God courteously stands aside because by our wish it does not concern him. And then Lloyd-Jones says, there is no reward from God for those who seek it from men. So we're going to actually get what we want, but that is all. But verse 4 says, your father who sees in secret, if we do this right, with a self-forgetfulness, and just to an audience of one, he says that your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, Willard says, the one who gives without regard, to who is looking and does not even notice it as anything special themselves. No big deal. Is the very one who is God's attention and becomes God's creative partner in well doing. He or she knows the fellowship of God and sees the effects of these deeds multiplied for good in the power of God. So, what do you want? What do I want? What do I really, really want? You know, I just gotta tell you, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. I'm not there yet. I'm doing better than I did before, but I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect, but I'll tell you what I want more than any other thing. Intimacy with God, favor with God, blessedness that was spoken of in the Beatitudes, a, a flourishing in my, my real walking around here and now life and flourishing for all of eternity, I want to be fruitful in this world for the kingdom of God. I want to hear on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. And that has to do as much with my motives as it does with my generosity. Let me explain this. Entering the kingdom of heaven is a gift of grace through faith. Return back to the the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You do not earn that. You do not loss enough to be let into heaven. You only say, I can't. I didn't. I need help. And you call out for a savior and he says, love you, forgiven, welcome home. But what Jesus is talking about here is not faith as much as it is faithfulness. That too is a grace gift that we take and apply to our life. Heaven is a gift. There is also the judgment seat of Christ, where the thoughts and intentions and motives of the heart are divulged. And on that day, I don't want to just have a lot of fruit that people see. I want my heart to be fully his. How about you? A righteousness that exceeds, a righteousness that is telos, is a righteousness that lives for an audience of one. This morning, are you in the kingdom of heaven? You go, I'm not telos. (laughs) I'm greedy, narcissistic, self-absorbed. You better recognize me, and it's icky. You want to be forgiven? Come to Jesus. Jesus paid it on the cross. That's why he died. That's why he shed his blood for you. And if you'll believe that and you'll receive it, he will take that and he will forgive that sin and remove it as far as the east is from the west. And you will be a child of God. Why not call on him right now? Invite him into your life to forgive your sins, right where you're at. Secondly, where are you at in this transformation, the motives of your heart? Where are you at today? Are you like me, that's grieving, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Can you look back even on this last week, the generosity that you gave and the motives that were attached to it, and you go, oh, dear God, that is icky. Can I invite you, return back to beatitude number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Mourn that before the Lord and say, dear God, I'm 53, please change me. Please do your work in me. I don't want to end this year the way I began this year. I want to be more like Jesus from the heart in my motives for loving and serving God and others to be purified. I invite you to do that now. And then I want to turn it into a quick challenge. Every single person in here this week, ask God for one opportunity, for one gracious act of service in anonymity. Give something of value away. Give something extra away. Ask God to make your motives pure. Say, God, I do it out of love for you. Out of love for you and that image bearer, please take this gift. See this as as worship before you. And then walk away. Ask him to open your eyes. God, where would that be? Maybe you already know what it is. That you put it on your calendar. I'm gonna do that this week. And then finally, Journey Church, what if we were this kind of church every week? You go, what's the power of one? One kind act, one generous good deed with pure motives. What about 177 of us? What would that do in this community? It would be a city shining on a hill that all people would know Jesus. Let's be that church. Amen. Father, thank you so much. We're here. We're asking you that you would forgive our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for taking them on yourself and dying on the cross for us. Thank you that the story of the Christian walk is not over at the cross, it begins at the cross. In your transforming power and work, continues on. And God, we don't want to be the same. We don't want to be jerks. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to be narcissists. Would you change us, every single one of us, and as a church, that we might be sons and daughters of our Father? Perfect. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.